Our series is uh, in the book of James. We are working our way through verse by verse, and we will be doing so until probably the beginning of September, over a 15-week period. Today is week six, and the series is entitled, No Nonsense Christianity. And that's for, for a reason, because James is a straightforward kind of guy. <clears throat> he doesn't call a spade, a shovel, or a gardening implement. He calls it as it is. He's typically down to earth and straight talking. He doesn't beat about the bush. And it appears that um, some of the Christians that James wrote to were making superficial judgments on other people who came into their worship gatherings and they were discriminating uh, on the basis of wealth and the kinds of clothes that people wore. And so, in typical James fashion, he hits this head on. And we're going to be working our way through uh, James chapter 2 verses uh, 1 to 13 this morning. Verse 1. My brothers, you always need to watch out when he calls them my brothers. You think, you know, something hard and tough is going to come in a moment or two. My brothers as believers in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ Don't show favoritism. The New English Bible calls it snobbery. Don't show snobbery. Don't be snobs. And then James tells this hypothetical story. Suppose a man comes to your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. And a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here is a good seat for you. But to the poor man, you stand there. Sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And therefore, James paints this graphic picture for his readers. And in the New Testament uh, Greek, and we know that the the New Testament was written in uh, Greek, it's even more poignant than perhaps the English versions, because um, when it says there in the phrase, wearing a gold ring... Uh, literally, in, in, in the Greek, I understand, it, is, it literally means gold-fingered, a nugget on every knuckle, a gem on every joint. And uh, the thought of that kind of discrimination ever happening in our church, or in any church, for that matter, would make us feel quite sick. Wouldn't you feel sick by that, that kind of discrimination? It would be utterly repulsive to us. There was an apocryphal story on Facebook that was doing the rounds a couple of years ago, of a pastor who one day attended his brand new church, a church that he was going to be welcomed in as the pastor. And uh, he turned up on that morning, because none of the congregation knew him, and he was dressed up as a homeless person, in rags, unshaven, dishevelled hair, and he was entirely shunned by the congregation. Later in the service, he unveiled and introduced himself as their new pastor, much to the shame of the congregation. And that did the rounds on Facebook a couple of years ago, but, you know, it it, it was a fake story. Even so, it arouses in us probably some of the emotions that James's hypothetical story aroused in the readers of his letter. People discriminate for a number of reasons. Let me just whiz through just a few of them with you. Uh, Appearance. People sometimes get judged over their appearance, how they look, the way they dress. I once heard of an experiment with some uh, hitchhikers 
they dressed them up in different ways in this experiment and the more well dressed a person was, a hitchhiker was the more likely that person was to be picked up by someone ancestry <coughs> where people are judged according to their race, their nationality, their ethnic background sometimes the colour of their skin and we all know the, the terrible evil of apartheid that exists in many forms throughout our world today then there's age <coughs> you're either too young or you're too old this week my darling granddaughter Emily she went up to have a visit to the school that she's starting in September she's presently in uh, preschool and uh, she's starting proper school, big school, infant school in September <coughs> and she told me that she liked her new teacher, Miss Hughes <coughs> and I asked her well, how old is Miss Hughes? and she didn't really know how to answer that one I said, so is Miss Hughes uh, older than Mammy? yes <laughs> older than Mammy and I said, is she older than Mam Gee, uh, Julie? that's uh, Welsh for grandmother for those who don't know she thought for a moment, she said, yes so I thought, hmm. Is she older than the Queen? And she thought for a moment and she said, Yes. <laughs> and then I was a bit on, on a bit of a run now, so I said, Is she older than Grandad? No. <laughs> She's still my favourite granddaughter. Actually, Miss Hughes is in her 20s. So getting inside the mind of a four year old. So we have appearance, age, uh, ancestry, age, uh, achievement, again according to how successful people have been and of course we've got affluence which is the most common discrimin discrimination of all where people are judged by their wealth. <coughs> and the root pro problem here uh, that uh, James wrote to, it appears, was spiritual immaturity that these were adults physically but spiritually they were still babes that these people could talk a good talk, but they were pretty weak on the action side of their Christianity. Warren Wearsby wrote, Immature Christians talk about their beliefs, but the mature person lives his faith. Hearing God's word and talking about God's word can never substitute for doing God's word. <clears throat> and in this section that we're looking at this morning, James tells these immature Christians that not only what they're doing is wrong, but he tells them why, they're, uh, why it's wrong. And I want to pick up, as we work our way through the next few verses of this passage this morning, four reasons that James gives that these persons um, should not discriminate. Firstly, he says, it's unchristian. God himself shows no discrimination. It's unreasonable. Uh, what they are doing doesn't make sense, and we'll look at those scriptures in a few moments' time. He says it's unloving, it's against God's law. And finally he says it's unwise. Because one day we ourselves will be subject to judgment, not the judgment of other human fallible people, but the judgment of God. So let's work our way through those four points this morning. Firstly, don't discriminate because it is unchristian that God shows no discrimination. In verse 5, James writes, Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? James here is telling us that God does not look 
at what a man or a woman looks at. He doesn't look at what a person is wearing. God doesn't look on the outside. God isn't impressed by a person's wealth, fine clothing, or even goodness, or anything else. There's a great verse found in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. And the context is that the, uh, David and his brothers, his brothers especially, initially, were coming before the prophet Samuel, because Samuel was on a mission to anoint the next king of Israel. And Samuel was quite impressed with his brothers. And then God spoke to him and said, The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And this morning we may be lacking in all sorts of ways, in intelligence, in physical attractiveness, in money. We may be socially on the lowest rung of the ladder, but God doesn't discriminate against us. Isn't that wonderful? You know, it's been said that the church must be the one place on earth where all distinctions are truly wiped out. That the church, Christ's church, the church for whom, he, for whom he died, is the only truly classless society on earth. And Paul writes in Galatians 3.28 these words, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. As someone once said, the, 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 the ground at the foot of the cross is level ground. And never mind who you are, it wouldn't mind, matter if you were royalty. You come to the God in exactly the same way as a prostitute who lives in the slums, or an alcoholic wife beater. No one gets a head start. No one gets penalised that we are on level ground. And that is the glory of the Christian faith, I would say. That we are what we are by God's grace and not because of anything in us or anything that we have done. And I think that this truth is so well illustrated by probably one of my favourite um, stories in the entire Bible. It's found in the New Testament. It's the story of Onesimus. And it's found in the book of Philemon. And Philemon is only one chapter long. And sometimes we can miss that. It's towards the end of the New Testament. But wow, what a great story it is. Onesimus was a slave. <clears throat> he was a slave of his master Philemon. Philemon was a Christian and lived in Colossae. And it appears that Onesimus, this slave, stole something from his master and ran away. Where would he go? He wanted to go to a city where he could be anonymous as well as Onesimus. Sorry, get the wisecracks out of the way. And he went to Rome. He met the Apostle Paul there. And in, Paul, he in, in Rome he became a Christian. And Paul then decides to write to his friend Philemon and ask if he would forgive Onesimus and restore him once again. And Paul said, if he, is, if he owes you anything, please let me know, put it to my account, I will repay you. And when you understand something of the culture of this time, you will see the weight of what Paul then says. You see, Paul was formerly a Pharisee. He lists his Jewish credentials he was one who kept the, the law externally perfectly, so faultlessly, to use his own words. And now he was the mighty apostle to the Gentiles. But Paul, this great man, he reaches across this social, moral, religious gulf that separated them. And he calls this thieving runaway, someone who ran the risk of having his sins branded on his forehead with a hot, hot iron. He calls him 
a dear brother. Wow! Wow! Paul reaches across that gulf. A dear brother. And if that was a huge gulf for Paul to reach across, can you imagine what the gulf was between us and God when he sent his son into this world to reach down to us? You see, the good news is that God doesn't show any discrimination. And James's message here is that if God doesn't, then neither should any human being. It's interesting to read how the Salvation Army started. Catherine and William Booth, the, the founders, would bring people to church on a Sunday. But the people that they brought to church weren't particularly well-dressed people. In fact, they were pretty shabby. They were not your typical churchgoer of the late 19th century. There were no designer labels, no Calvin Klein, Gucci, Jean-Paul Gaultier, or Armani, not even a Marks and Spencer among them. The regular churchgoers became increasingly agitated by these people. These people who were taking over their church. After all, they weren't particularly well spoken and they weren't particularly clean. And they were quite rough looking characters, many of them. But as many of them became Christians, guess what they did? You'll never guess. They brought others along with them. They brought their friends with them on a Sunday morning. And the whole church was full, a whole section. And they weren't well received. And they were not made comfortable or accepted. And they left to form the Salvation Army. Just over 25 years ago, Julie and I planted a new church in South Wales, as many of you know, it was an incredibly tough housing estate. As tough as you could ever imagine. We initially met in a school hall. And some of the characters that we would have as part of the church weren't your average middle class church going attenders. I think that would probably uh, be the kindest way of putting it. And I remember a lady there, I might have told you about her before. Her name was Sheila Merchant. Sheila had been a, a Christian for most of her life. Um, she was always immaculately dressed. And she spoke posh. Well, posher than I did anyway. That doesn't take much, I suppose, but there we go. And um, she, I, I don't think she'd ever been subjected to the folk in her life that started coming to the church. And their lives and her life were, they were not just in different places, they were in different galaxies. And yet the one thing I remember about Sheila was the way that she reached out to people who came into the church. And I remember her hugging ex-Hell's angel Dave and giving him a, a kiss and a cuddle as he came into the church. And then Frank. He was in his early 50s then and he'd spent more than half his years in jail, mainly for things like armed robbery. You know, nice character. And, you know, sort of catching around, hugging him. You see, God is so wonderful. He accepts us as we are. We can't earn his love. We don't deserve his love. It's all by God's grace totally unmerited by us. We don't deserve a thing from God. Nothing. And yet what he has given us 
is all things through Christ. He has given us our salvation, a new start, freedom in Christ, a purpose in life, a hope for the future. And he has given us that freely. And James here is saying, and James's message is this, if God has given us what we could never earn, if God has given us what we could certainly not deserve, then how, how could we ever, ever, ever look down our long noses at anyone else? And to do so is not to understand the gift of God's grace that we've been given. That's his message. I said there were four points. James goes on in verses 5 to 7. He says, you know, not to show favoritism because it's unreasonable. What they were doing doesn't make any sense at all. Let's read these verses. Verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. God has not chosen those who are poor in the... uh, Sorry. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. It is not the rich who are ex- is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? Now James isn't saying here that it's good to be poor and it, uh, that it's good to be poor and bad to be rich, and he's not saying that it's just the poor that will be saved. But what he is saying is that God has chosen those who are poor to be rich in faith. And God doesn't discriminate against the poor. That's what James is saying. And he doesn't discriminate against the rich either. And I'm glad about that. Because all of us are very, very rich. As I've said before, we are among the 10% richest people on the planet. And I'm so glad that God doesn't discriminate against us. But you see, when you look at these verses, you say, what's this all about? Well, in New Testament times, it was often the Roman nobility the upper crust of society, they were the ones who were persecuting the Christians and judging the Christians and insulting the Christians and sending the Christians to the lions. So James says, why are you so worried about impressing them? They're certainly not worried about impressing you. They're doing exactly the opposite. So, it's not only unchristian, but it's unreasonable. In his argument, he goes on, there's a real logic here as, uh, as you follow his thinking. He says it's unloving, it's against God's law. Verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favouritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For He who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you will become a lawbreaker. Love your neighbour as yourself. Why does James call this the royal law, I wonder? Well, I suppose you could say it was from Jesus, who's the king of kings. But I think it's probably more than that. That this one law... Love your neighbour as yourself is the 
the source of all the other laws governing human relationships. You've heard me say before that the Ten Commandments, you can split them into two groups. The first four commandments are all about loving God with all your heart. And the latter six are all about loving your neighbour as yourself. And this one command, the royal law, is all about the, the last six of the Ten Commandments. It's absolutely key. Mahatma Gandhi was a Hindu. <clears throat> and he wanted to know more about Jesus of Nazareth. And after reading the Gospels, he became incredibly impressed with Jesus. So he decided to visit a church, one of the Christian churches in Calcutta. And sadly, he was stopped at the door from entering. One of the ushers told him, you are not welcome here. Because this church is for high caste Indians and for whites. And he was neither. And because of his rejection by the church, he turned his back on Christianity and never ever again considered the claims of Jesus Christ. In fact, some time later he said, I'd be a Christian if it were not for the Christians. I don't know about you, I find that incredibly sad. Do you? Incredibly sad. And I pray that no one would ever say that about us as they observe our behaviour or perhaps about our church that we are or they in their thinking less than welcoming to people less than uh, welcoming to people some who might be quite different to us and I pray that that would never be said about us individually or about us as a church John writes in 1 John 4.20 if a man says he loves God and hates his brother, he's lying. How can you love God whom you haven't seen if you don't love your brother whom you have seen? And you see, how we relate to others provides evidence of how much we love God. This week I came across um, a little poem. And this poem was written by a guy who compared his girlfriend with his friend Paul's girlfriend. And you got that? He wrote a little poem. He compares his girlfriend with his friend Paul's girlfriend. And it goes like this. Paul's girl is rich and haughty. My girl is poor as clay. Paul's girl is young and pretty. Mine like, looks like a bale of hay. <laughs> Paul's girl is smart and clever. But my girl is dumb but good. Would I trade my girl for Paul's? You bet your life I would. <laughs> I don't know if you saw that coming, but maybe this guy should have read what James writes here in this chapter. You see, a casual reader might think that James is uh, making a large mountain out of a molehill here. Because, you know, he spends, what, 12, 13 verses just on this one issue of the way that people are greeted into that church fellowship when they meet together, favouritism. Now some people might say, well, surely that's not that bad. You know, it's, it's, it's not nice, it shouldn't be done, but you know, when you think of the church at Corinth, for example, there was an awful lot more going wrong in Corinth. You know, the people that uh, James is writing to, it wasn't that bad. You know, Corinth, they had sexual immorality and division and lawsuits amongst believers and malpractices in communion and misuse of spiritual gifts and... The, and and some people might say, well, it's, it's only a little issue, it's only a little misgiving, a little bit of flattery. What's the big deal? 
And this is where James's argument is, is, is astonishing. What he says here in his argument is that sin is sin. And in, by breaking God's law, whether it's murder or adultery or favoritism, you become a lawbreaker. Let me ask you a question. How many laws do you need to break to become a lawbreaker? How many crimes do you need to commit to become a criminal? How many uh, chain uh, links do you need to break a chain? You see, I don't know if you've ever been to a, a china shop which uh, has this sign. You break it, you buy it. And, uh, you know, if uh, something topples over because your elbow has accidentally nudged it, the proprietors of the shop, it, it's no good saying to them, well, you know, the teapot is intact. It's, it's just the handle that's dropped off. They won't wear it. They really don't. To them, it doesn't matter if it's broken in one piece, two pieces, or a thousand pieces. You see, God has got incredibly high standards. And that is why none of us can be saved by our own works or righteous ways. It was fascinating listening to James uh, this morning in uh, your testimony there, James, when you were talking about um, that very humble lady who said that you are a sinner. And you thought, my word, that, that doesn't feel right. That doesn't sit right. But you see, that's what the Bible says of all of us. And the reason for that is that even if we have lived a nigh on perfect life, even if we have uh, you know, lived our lives very uprightly, we still have this issue of sin in our lives. Because we have all, every one of us, we have broken the most important and the greatest commandment. What is the greatest commandment? The greatest commandment is this, said Jesus, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your strength. Okay? Now, I for one, I've broken that commandment many, many times. And I know that every one of you, every person who is alive, we have broken that commandment. And essentially, this is what um, James is teaching here. And that is why we need Jesus. Because Jesus can do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And the fourth um, reason that James gives us but it's unwise, because one day we ourselves will be subject to, to judgment. Not the judgment of others, but the judgment of God. In verse 12, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And James is telling us here, and he's telling us all, that we need to watch the way that we live our lives here. Because one day we will all give account of our lives before God. One day we will be judged. Not only for our actions, but also for our attitudes. Paul writes much the same in his letter, second letter to the Corinthians. He says, so we make it our goal to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That each one may receive what is due to him. For the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. That's 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. And one day... We will all meet Jesus. That will be a glorious day. It will. But it will also be a day when we give account to Jesus for the way that we used our lives. Did we honour him with our lives? 
Did we use our time and our talents for his purpose and for bringing him honour in our lives? Were we good stewards of the finances that he gave to us? Did we keep most of it for our own pleasure? Money which he intended us to use to bless others and to extend his kingdom in this world? Did we act with favouritism and prejudice to others? Did we make it easier or harder for people to believe in Jesus? And I think it would be a very foolish person indeed that does not at least on occasion think about those things. Okay. Let's just come into land. How should we respond to James's teaching today? Let me give you three words. First of all, we need to accept everybody. I don't know if you knew this, but you, you can accept someone. You can accept someone without approving of their lifestyle. That's possible. You see, a person might be living their lives contrary to the scriptures, but you can still accept that person without approving of the lifestyle that they're necessarily living. You see, our culture has, two, has accepted two huge lies, and they are these. The first one is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, somehow you must fear or hate them. That's a lie. That's a lie. And the second lie is this, is that to love someone means that you agree with everything they believe or do. And both are absolute nonsense. You don't have to compromise your convictions to be compassionate. Some of you are looking at me. Let me give you that again. Our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear them or hate them. And the second is that to love someone means that you agree with everything they believe and do. And both are nonsense. Accept one another, just as Christ accepted you, writes Paul. And that's a good place to start. And I would like to believe that our church is a hospital for sinners rather than a hotel for saints. And I'm not sure how to say this sensitively, but if you think that you are perfect, you certainly don't belong here. You don't belong here. If you think that you're perfect... And I would gladly announce that we are a church for people who haven't got it all together. You're smiling. I mean that sincerely. We're absolutely a church for people who haven't got it all together. And as a family, we're made up of all sorts of people, all sorts of backgrounds and cultures and races. And in essentials, unity, we have unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And I pray that the third part of that is true as well. That in all things, that we will have charity. Acceptance is the key. Secondly, appreciate everybody. Now this goes a little bit further than acceptance. You see, you can accept people without appreciating them. And this takes a little bit more effort. And creativity and imagination sometimes as well. Philippians chapter 2 verses 3 to 5. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. Each of you should, not, should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
look for things in others that you can appreciate. Things for which you can thank God. And thirdly, affirm everybody. Give everybody a lift whenever you can. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11, encourage one another and build each other up. So when people stumble, and we all do, don't criticise, sympathise. Be an encourager rather than a complainer or a condemner. And maybe this morning you're a visitor to this church, or maybe you have recently started coming to this church. I want you to know that you are entirely and totally welcome amongst us. Doesn't matter what you wear. Doesn't matter what your economic statement is, status is. Doesn't matter if you're married or not married or been married ten times. Doesn't matter what colour of skin you have, what race you're from. Doesn't matter what sexuality you have or the way that you see yourself or any other distinctive. It was said of the New Testament church, see how they love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. Friends, we are equal in God's eyes. There's no distinction. We are united in Christ. And let us not forget that the ground at the foot of the cross is level ground.